Welcome to the Brain Gain Youngstown Leadership Series podcast. Each week, we'll learn from leaders who are driving change and making an impact. Now here's your host, the CEO of the Youngstown Publishing Company, Jeff Leo Herman. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. So if you are at all interested in how careers in the military work, then this episode with James Dignan is certainly for you. I have to warn you up front, we did this on-site at Ringo's, a restaurant over on Phelps Street. So we have some ambient audio happening, but it's good. It all works out. It was a great environment, a great way to get really conversational and dig deep into careers in the military. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to share some brain game news with you. So the Junior Achievement Virtual Career Fair was just held. I also participated You'll find a full write-up about the career fair in our December edition, and you may have it physically in print in your hands, or you may want to just check it out on the website under the e-editions tab in the main navigation. But the JA event was a great experience. Obviously, it had to switch to virtual. Last year, 3,000 kids attended in person at the Eastwood Mall Complex. This year, it went virtual. Uh, Michelle Merkel, head of Junior Achievement, was really pleased with the event. So as I, I was also a participant in the event, had the opportunity to speak to careers in uh, sales, media, and marketing. But I tell you what, anyone that has dealt with trying to manage a virtual event, this went really well. And as with most things, the scale, the reach potentially increased, and the engagement was just different. So for the foreseeable future, obviously, a lot of events will be in this hybrid format. But it was great to see the great success that Junior Achievement had in this virtual career fair, helping kids really get an understanding of what they want to do as they pursue their career goals and aspirations. So check it out. And uh, on to today's conversation with James. Strap in. We went about an hour. Uh, James is a great guy. I've gotten to know him over the past couple of years, consider him a friend. And I had the pleasure of speaking to him. Just I've had pent up interest in how careers in the military work, especially those that change service lines. So we really got got very specific and, and you know, weaved us through his career. And he was generous with his time. He shared the leadership philosophies of the various branches of service. Uh, he even tells the story of how his experience working on the Israeli-Palestinian border and his time there, how that applies to situations we have here in Northeast Ohio and some of the key learnings that he's had over time. So with that, let's jump into the episode. Uh, as always, please send us any feedback that you have or any questions. And I thank you for your time and attention today. Here's James. to go. Welcome to the Brain Gain Leadership Series podcast, James. Thanks for, for joining us yeah, today. Great. Thanks for having me. We're, got to say up front, we're sitting here at Gringo's, a new restaurant here on Phelps Street. It's awesome. Pretty cool establishment. So for any of our audience out there, apologize in advance for the ambient noise. <laughs> but I don't know. James and I are hanging. We're just, uh, we've known each other for several years, really been looking forward to this conversation. Outstanding. You've got a lot to offer, a great global perspective to share, doing all the important work. So we're glad you're here today. Well, thanks for having me. Looking yeah. forward to it. So, you know, we start all these interviews out with, uh, what did you want to do as a child? So give us like the quick sketch of who's James. <laughs> and you grew up in Southern California, I believe. Yeah, in Southern California. Uh, you know, back in the, the race to the moon and uh, all those things. I remember as a kid uh, laying on the grass there in Southern California and watching uh, the jet airplanes go by. And we were very close to uh, Miramar and uh, El Toro Air Station. So we had the fighter jets taking off from there and going out over the Pacific. Back then they'd do sonic booms, they'd breaking the speed of sound. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And uh, I would just dream about flying and uh, going to the moon. And you know, I remember being as a young kid, you know, three, four, five years old, sitting in front of the TV watching those uh, uh, moonshots and you know listening to Walter Cronkite and right. that stuff to me was just like oh my god how, how cool would that be and uh, I think the first time I knew what I wanted to be was uh, on my fourth birthday we flew fourth. My, my brother and four I. Four years old? Four years old. Okay. Uh, my brother and I he was three I was four 
uh, we got put on an airplane uh, at LAX and sent to Detroit to uh, visit my grandparents. So we went for a month. And uh, I'm one of nine boys. Or sorry, I have nine brothers, one of 10 boys. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. So there. New information here. Oh, you didn't you know this? No. Yeah, I have, have nine. I have nine brothers and three sisters. Oh, so, a dozen. Yeah, 13 counting me. 13. Wow, so, uh, Baker's dozen. Yeah, in Southern, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. In Southern California, the average family, even in the 60s, was, you know, like 0.5. Yeah. You know, in Newport Beach, where I grew up, that, that was really uncommon. Other than there was one other family, the Moors, that lived right around the corner from us, and they had a total of 17. 17. A big, big span. But, yeah, we kept the Catholic schools, you know, full for couple decades. Where are you in the birth order? I'm the third boy in the fourth overall. Okay. So you're like so the upper top you know, tier. Top tier, top, what's that, percentile? Top third, yeah. Yeah. Top quartile? That's right. Is that right? Okay. So my brother and I uh, went out to uh, visit my grandparents. I was very close with my grandfather. Uh, he was an executive at Ford at the time. And uh, we flew out there and I got on the airplane back then, you know, it was a DC-10. Uh, I still have some of the stuff that they gave me, because back then, you know, you traveled in a suit, and oh, yeah. uh, it was a big deal. And we were as kids going, uh, you know, it was very unusual, but we met with the, the flight attendant, and they sat us the down, wings. and I got my wings, I got my playing cards, I, and I had all of the, um, it was uh, uh, Pacific, or Northwest Orient Airlines, which became wow. Northwest, which became Delta, right, finally in the, in the mergers, but I remember getting up in the cockpit, flying while we're flying in the in the air, let you get up there, and you know, uh, cockpit door was open. You right. Know, you talk to the pilots, and I said, "This is what I want to do. I want to be a pilot, you know, and uh, have a cool hat and with some wings, and you know, what what better life? It was pretty glamorous, I thought, you know. Yeah. Uh, and just the mm -hmm. adrenaline rush and the fun of flying an airplane and. From then on, I always did. I didn't know whether or not it would be airlines or military or something, but so that, was did. that always in the back of your head? Like it was. I want to be a pilot, or when did you get close to that decision of, I think I want to be a pilot, and the military is my path to that end. It's kind of a funny story. I had no background in my family in aviation or uh, in the military or any of those really. Uh, my father served a short period of, you know, conscripted service during Korea, had an uncle uh, who ended up going to Vietnam. He volunteered to avoid, uh, you know, getting drafted, so he made his right. choice and, and went in 68, 69, which is pretty bad timing, but yeah. uh, I had a little bit of feedback from that, but it was, uh, there, there was no shared experience really for me. Uh, I went through school and, you know, I. You know, thought I wanted to be a, a football player and I realized as much as I like football, I don't have the talent and, to get me to the next level and keep playing. And you know, I wanted to be a rock and roll star, you know, so I, I played and I, I worked real hard and I did that for a while. And Guitar, drums? Uh, guitar. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I still have a bunch of guitars, but uh, don't get to play as much as I, I'd like to, but it's something I just enjoyed. And again, it was something that I met so many really super talented people and I realized, yeah, I, that's probably, I can have a support role, maybe that's probably not the future, right? you know, for me. And I ended up, because uh, I really enjoyed it in uh, electronics, uh, built my own guitar amplifiers and things like that, and then ended up uh, studying, uh, uh, you know, the theory and physics of electronics and going into the electrical engineering role. And then I ended up working uh, for a startup company in San Francisco back in 1983, making uh, prototype workstations for oil and gas exploration. And uh, back then it was digitizing maps and tablets and right. uh, you know, putting color graphics, which was you know, unheard of. So those were the kinds of things that I was doing, working in a small firm there, working for the Shell Oils and BP and you know, Unical and that kind of thing. And, uh, working with their geologists and geophysicists. And uh, you know, my role was purely the hardware. Uh, but one of my older brothers was uh, one of the software developers for the graphics portion, uh, the integration. So that's how I got tied into that company. And he still, both of my older brothers still work in the computer industry uh, software side. So you're the only one that was in, ended up in the military? Uh, yes, out of all my siblings. Wow. So I have uh, a couple nieces and nephews that are in now. Oh, one, she's, she was in, she got out, but uh, have, have a niece or nephew that's in now in the Air Force.
But I did that, I worked, and then I left there and went back uh, for a girl, of course, went back to uh, the Portland, Oregon area and was working for Intel. And I was doing that for a while, making uh, really good money building custom prototype computer systems for Intel. So we were building things like uh, the server for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Uh, we did a uh, uh, custom computer system for the Singapore Telecom, things like that. These are in the mainframe days, right? Right, right. Yeah, mainframe computing. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, the tablet or your cell phone probably has nearly as much computing power today, but these were uh, large for data uh, primarily, uh, but, you know, it was coming out of the age of the punch cards and into the age of, you know, actual uh, entry and uh, print, right. you know, data storage, um, that kind of thing. But again, I was purely in the, the hardware side of it. Uh, we'd piece the systems together. We had a small team, about a dozen of us, all in our, you know, early 20s. And our, our team lead, who we called the old lady, she was, I don't know, she might have been 30, you know? <laughs> right. She was married with kids, you know? Right. And we, oh, were, yeah. we were all like, really? oh yeah, the old lady's got, got us on. But it was always uh, on deadline. I was getting paid really well, uh, but we have deadlines. They say, okay, we need this by X. Like I think of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Their system was, was failing and they need to replace it, so they needed it like yesterday. So the way Intel incentivized us was uh, the earlier you get it, the bigger your bonus. Oh. And uh, so I tell people, I said, um, I was doing this for a while and uh, making a lot of money, but we were working all the time. So to work 60, 70 plus hours a week was not unheard of, but we're young and what the heck, you know, yeah, it was right. fun, but we're working all the time, weekends, holidays, whatever it took to get the systems out. And uh, I got to a point where I said, okay, uh, I can't do this forever. This is, this, I don't see myself doing this forever, I guess is the best way to put it. And I said, well, what else do I want to do? I said, you know, sports. Football primarily, I always loved that. That, that wasn't going to be a, a long-term path for the career in music, as I said. You know, that, that wasn't going to be, I'd still be a part of who I am, but it's not sure. going to be a career path. I said, well, I always loved flying, so why don't I see? I had no idea what, what was the process or you know, where to go. And So you spent a few years in the private sector yeah. before you even joined the Navy. I graduated high school early, and by the time I was 18, I had my two-year degree, and, and by the time I was... 19, I was working in industry. Uh, wow. And so, and I was working in San Francisco. I lived in Sausalito, worked in San Francisco, and you know, it was, it was fun, it was neat. Then going back to the port. Did you take the ferry from Sausalito to San Francisco? I did, Francisco? yeah, yeah, I lived my, my first apartment. Get um, off in the Embarcadero? Yep, <laughs> all familiar, huh? Yes. Yeah, I, I lived uh, maybe a five minute walk from the ferry in Sausalito, so I just walked down the hill. I tell my girls, you know, they're like, well, how much was your apartment? Because my daughter's, one of them's thinking she wants to, wants to move to Seattle or San Francisco. I said, just beware, you know, it's gonna, Sticker it's gonna cost you some money. I said, in 1983, when I moved to Sausalito, my studio apartment was $1,750. <laughs> in 1983. <laughs> She's like, what? She's like, well, what would it cost now? I said, probably five like grand. four or five grand, yeah. <laughs> and it was nothing special. It was like a 650 square foot, you know, in a, I had, it was a, like a fourplex or a sixplex, and I was just one. Could you imagine quarantining in a studio apartment? Because I had one too in Chicago. Yeah. 600 square feet. Yeah. Same. Just, you know, little box. Be crazy. Well, you'd have to get outside and yeah. do some things. But yeah, I love San Francisco. I love the music scene and all that. But again, it was, uh, I was working all the time. All right. So you worked, and then you're getting to this. I want to join the, did you say I want to join the Navy or did you just start, there was no Googling back then, so yeah, no Googling. how did you discover? Uh, I don't really know what struck me because this was right before uh, Top Gun came out. Uh, you know, and then of course everyone goes, oh, you joined because of Top Gun, right? Yeah. Was, no, but you know, that solidified my, sure. my choice, you know, that oh, how cool is that? Not that I want to be like Tom Cruise, more like Val Kilmer, but yeah, right. you know. Yeah, Iceman. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, being around, uh, you know, growing up in Southern California, being around uh, the Navy and Marine Corps, I, I knew it was there. And then, uh, of course, you know, Neil Armstrong is a Marine, and all of my favorite astronauts were, for whatever reason, not maybe not all of them, but see, most of them were either Navy or Marine Corps pilots. And uh, I just always thought that was really cool. And 
my favorite airplanes that I liked, the F-4 was one of them, and then the Navy version was just really cool. Okay. I go, how cool would it be to land on an aircraft carrier? I mean, you know, who gets to do that? And uh, I tell folks, it wasn't for any, you know, uh, larger than life purpose or reasoning of patriotism or anything else. This was about, I want to go have, fly airplanes and, and have fun. And right. what, what's the furthest extreme I could take that? And that was, I'll go check out the Navy. So, you know, I went down to the Navy, I had my long hair and my Fu Manchu, you know, and I go, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to join the Navy. Well, you know, you got to have a, if you want to fly airplanes, you got to have a degree. I go, okay, I do. And, you know, went on that path and did the testing. And So this was Cold War era, just coming out, Reagan yeah. had not torn the wall down yet, so to speak, but. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Reagan build for the military had just started to come in. Uh, so I think the first time I went in, was in, it was either late 87 or early 88. And then I officially uh, went off to uh, Pensacola in uh, end of 89 is when I started. So I ended up going through uh, the Aviation Officer Candidate School and that program, you know, like Richard Gere and uh, yeah. Officer and a Gentleman, I did that and then went off to uh, pilot training and ended up in Corpus Christi, Texas and then ended up back in the Bay Area in, uh, at Moffett Field down in um, in the San Jose area in South Bay uh, for P3 training, and then off to Hawaii and uh, ended up all over the world, you know, flying P3s. And uh, at some point there, I decided, you know, hey, I'd, I'm not sure that staying on active duty forever is uh, my thing. And back then, it was a six-year commitment for pilots. Now it's at least ten uh, that you you sign up for. But as I was approaching the end of that commitment, and this was now the, uh, the mid-90s, and uh, the Clinton years, you know, it started the drawback, and uh, the military was getting smaller, so the Navy was telling pilots to go home, and I said, hey, I'll go home if, uh, if you're gonna let somebody, you know, he wants to stay, I'll go. Right. And uh, Navy in their infinite wisdom said, no, that's the way the Navy works. We still own you for another 15 months, and so we're gonna move you next year and we're going to own you for two more years after that because we moved you you know all right so, navy personnel policies it's not people first air force is much more people first but long story short i got my uh senator that i used to uh work for back in college uh mark hatfield was the uh, junior senator or senior senator in uh, oregon at the time and uh, he wrote a nice letter to the navy and the navy let me go and one of the uh, caveats was I had to continue uh, my service uh, commitment uh, with somebody in the Guard or Reserves. And uh, I ended up switching to the Oregon F-15 unit, the Oregon Air National Guard, and uh, my high school physics teacher was the squadron commander at the time. Oh, nice. So I called him up, I said, hey, would you take another pilot? And they were like, yeah, great. And then uh, long story short, I never actually got to fully uh, get fully trained and go through that because through the drawdowns, they lost, they're an air defense unit, they lost the bulk of their uh, mission. And at the time, you know, well, air defense is going away, right? It's the, the Cold War is won. This right. is the, the peace dividend. Wind and it up. We yeah. don't need air defense because nobody's attacking us. And so all the air defense units were, were getting smaller in consolidation. And, uh, uh, you know, at that point, I said, well, I'll look for something else. And uh, there was a unit that within that guard unit that, uh, was they called it a, a combat air traffic control officer, uh, but it was a uh, essentially a unit that would go in in advance uh, and open up an airfield. Uh, now they've become special forces uh, uh, combat control teams, but back then it was a combat communications squadron, light with a, the CATCO position, and I was going to go as the the CATCO, and then. Uh, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up getting mobilized and uh, for Bosnia, and I hadn't even finished my training, and uh, I was having fun and uh, enjoying my time in uniform and realized what I had missed was that camaraderie and working with the men and women in uniform and having a singular sense of purpose and, you know, it's uh, being part of something bigger than yourself, and that's where I more was drawn back to that. And I said, okay, but I'm gonna do it. I need to be back flying. So they had a C-130 reserve unit there, and I ended up going over to, there to them, and uh, they had, it was a rescue squadron, and uh, I don't know if you recall, but they had an airplane that uh, 
had crashed out in the Pacific Ocean. They had uh, some malfunctions on the aircraft and they had just lost uh, the whole crew. And they said, well, we're not hiring anyone right now, but we know somebody who is. And they referred me to a unit out in Philadelphia area. And then I got hired and I joined the reserves and I started flying C-130s all over the world. Wow, so all the dots are connecting. Yeah, it was like ding, ding, ding from <laughs> one to the next. Uh, they say the best laid plan, you always got to have a plan or at least a vision of yeah, where right. you want to be. Vision, yeah. uh, but it's about being ready for the next opportunity. And for me, that's truly what it was. I, nobody could lay out this plan uh, like I did and uh, expect it to you know, stand the test right. of, of battle. Entering the Navy as a pilot, there's a, um, is that a different path than say someone who graduates from high school and enlists? as an enlisted personnel, yes. right? Yeah. And is there a, would you recommend to say, say the parents, our audience, who parents who have children that perhaps want to consider the military as a career, recommend they go to school, then join the military, or recommend they join directly? What, any? Well, it depends. I mean, there are many different paths to getting there, say, to be a pilot. Um, you can go enlisted, so 18 years old, right out of high school. Actually, when I was uh, in high school, I was graduating early, I told my parents, I said, the Army had a program, high school to flight school. I could go become a warrant officer and fly helicopters. I go, how cool is that? So yeah. I told my dad, I said, I'm going to join uh, the Army, but I'm not 18, so I need your signature. He's like, no, when you're 18, you can sign it yourself. My dad was like, no, he was adamant the military wasn't for me. Uh, Actually, when I called him up, uh, or he called me when I was working at Intel, and just, hey, what's going on, how's your week? And I said, hey, Dad, guess what, I'm joining the Navy. He's like, what? Why, why would you join the Navy? He actually said, why would you throw your life away? Oh. That was his, his vision of uh, what the military was. And during his time and his perspective, you know, in the 50s and with Korean War, he was in grad school uh, at, out in Michigan. And back then it was, Either you come in and serve your 15 or 18 months or whatever it was of conscripted service, uh, or you can, we'll defer it, you finish your college and you'll come in and you'll, you'll serve two or three or four years, whatever it was. So he took the option of, well, I'll just go leave grad school now, go finish out my 15 months and go back home. And that's what he did. And so here's somebody who's in business school at the University of Michigan and, uh, or actually engineering school then. He did business school later, but, uh, here in grad school and uh, they hire him or take him into the army. They send him first to train as a cook and then they ended up putting him as a motor pool driver. So he's in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, driving around, you know, colonels and generals. Right. And he's like, this is a waste of my time and theirs yeah. to have me doing that. So that was kind of his perspective. And he's like, well, you're making good money. You're, you have a great job, you know, a great future. Why, why would you throw that away? And I said, Dad, that's, that's not what I see myself doing in 20 or 30 years. So you had the, the foresight, more or less, to just at least envision the future, not with a degree of precision, but yeah. you just couldn't see yourself building a General vision that yeah. this wasn't it. So look, in the 80s, you know, I graduated in 88, and joining the military just wasn't, it was rare. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't so talked common. about. Yeah. It just wasn't a path typically you followed. So would you say, based upon what you know today, is it a different experience for, say, someone in high school or college to join today? I mean, is there? Well, I think it is, and post 9-11 especially. Uh, so we have to remember a lot of these uh, airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines that we have coming in now, they weren't even alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> when 9-11 happened, it's like, wow, how can that be? But uh, let alone Vietnam or that experience, uh, these kids uh, tend to have more, it's not just, and none of them are there because, you know, go to jail or join the military, that they're not accepted. Uh, right now, about two thirds of all uh, youth graduating high school are not eligible to join the military, meaning they don't have the moral uh, requirements, meaning, they haven't been arrested or done something illegal or uh, they haven't graduated high school or um, they have some other uh, disability that prevents them and obesity being the single biggest. Wow. Uh, so they can't pass the, fit, the fitness test just to get in. Uh, so we have to deal with that. But uh, a lot of the kids that do come are, they're much higher caliber uh, enlisted uh, airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines than they were 
20, 30, 40 years ago. During conscription, all bets were off. Right. You know, the, the Trumps of the world never were conscripted. Right. For whatever reason, I forget what his was, flat feet or something, right? But uh, you go on down, you know, they, the higher echelons of our society didn't serve. And conscription, it meant that, um, you know, those less fortunate coming from um, more disadvantaged backgrounds uh, were the ones that were serving. And that's part of what, uh, we'll say, uh, during the all-volunteer force, part of the transition that happened in the military was good. We became a professional force, uh, but it also changed who serves. Um, so we got the best and the brightest from our lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds because that was, for them, the, the easiest opportunity to get a hold of. Um, but you'd be amazed at the kids that come in today into our military. They're, these, these are great kids. Uh, it's not the dregs that, well, you know, Jimmy doesn't know what to do with his life, so, you know, right. join the military, you know, join the Navy, see the world. I mean, there's still that too, but right. uh, a lot of those people won't qualify today. Now, if you have, say, your kids or, the, you know, your kids' friends, would you recommend if they approached you and said, I'd like to join the military, would you give them a, ask them a series of questions to really understand if they understand? Or Yeah, I think uh, you hear it from like John Zettenbauer out at MCCTC, uh, you know, he says, tells all their kids, you have to have a plan, right? Uh, which college, technical training program, or service are you gonna go into? You're gonna have a trade, a skill, or an education coming out of here, not the same path isn't the right one for everyone. I was like, what a great way to, to provide that opportunity, to make them aware that, that the military is an opportunity. Now, to your point, would I just give a blanket approval? No, but it would be, the military can be good for somebody who doesn't know what they want to do. Give you some structure, pay for college, give you some spending money. I mean, there's lots of things you could do. Maybe learn a skill, do something like fly an airplane. You know, could have done it some other ways, but yeah. it seemed like the, the coolest path was to join the military. And for some kids, you know, it's like, uh, if you're not sure what you want to do, you know, be careful, but, you know, try to make a, based on what you might see yourself doing, you know, is the Navy more your fit, you know, being, can you see yourself stuck in a submarine for four months underwater? Right. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Well, okay, you might be careful and make sure that you get into a career path that's not going to send you there. Or maybe that sounds really cool. I'd like to work on nuclear reactors. Well, good. Better have really good test scores. And Yeah. But, you know, you, you have the whole range of enlisted opportunities uh, in all the services. But, you know, especially in the Air Force and the Navy. Um, the Marines and the Army have their high-tech uh, sectors as well, but it's a much narrower band. So for somebody who just didn't really know what they wanted to do, but said, you know, I really like being on the rugby team and, you know, that physical, okay, maybe just going in and being a Marine grunt would be good for you. Yeah. But just try to, you know, open your eyes and make sure you know what you're getting into. Uh, but I would always say, is there something that you really would like to do? And focus your recruiting efforts into that and making sure you're working with the recruiters and you don't get the wool pull over your eyes and you end up somewhere that you really want to. Uh, you know, I'll say cook, which is something that people go, well, like my dad, go be a cook. You know, that's, well, some kids, that might be a lifelong, you know, goal to be right. a chef and work it. Well, you can go to all the services, but in the Navy and the Air Force, they have a lot of opportunities. Well, they'll send you to culinary school, and you could be serving, you know, the president on Air Force One. Uh, you could be doing all kinds of really neat stuff. And uh, people go, oh, I never would have thought that opportunity was yeah, in right. the military, but they're out there. Right. You know, to go be somebody that's flying satellites, that's yeah. flying drones. I mean, right. those opportunities exist. The Brain Gain is a collaborative effort, and we'd like to thank the headlining members of the coalition, including Sweeney Chevrolet Buick GMC, the Moransky Companies, and the Mahoning Valley Manufacturers Coalition. Also included are Farmers Bank Group, Youngstown State University, Eastern Gateway Community College, the DeBartolo Corporation, Cortland Bank, MS Consultants, and 898 Marketing. The military and a career in the military is about leadership, right? And it's really about the chain of command. Yes. Now, is leadership something that's 
taught? Is it just simply, does it just happen because of the structure? Or I, I, you know, I'm curious how you would coin the term leadership relative to a military career. Similar to the recruiting and going into the services, and part of the, why I would ask the question, what do you really want to do, is uh, about style and about uh, structure and format. Yeah. Uh, and it does, in the end, all come down to leadership, but each one of the services has a different, for lack of a better term, a different mentality or a different mindset, both on leadership uh, and some of that comes down to what are they required to do in execution of their duties in the military sphere. So uh, we know the military is not a democracy, uh, so uh, collaborative leadership still works and is executed in all the services, uh, but it's different. I'll use a story to illustrate why, why it's different. Um, in the Navy, uh, I was a legal officer. I went to the Naval Justice School. I was a pilot first. First and foremost, that's what I did. But every day when I went in and you know, I dressed in my uniform, I went in and I was the squadron's legal officer. So I did wills and powers of attorney. I did the court martials, Article 32s, all that stuff. I was a pilot, but right. uh, I went to the, the Naval Legal School to learn that. Uh, and I was working with, you know, obviously uh, the commander and the exec and the senior staff of the unit to do the legal piece. I was working on standard of forces agreements when I was in Japan and, you know, uh, in the Air Force they would be looking at you crosswise. You're a pilot, why are you here doing lawyer stuff? Well, because, you know, the origins of the Navy were, we have a ship, there are 100 beds on this ship, there are 200 jobs, well, we're going to divvy up all the jobs to the 100 people that are here. Right. And that's the Navy's mindset is uh, you're more than just a pilot. Uh, so we had, you know, my follow on jobs. I was a maintenance officer. I worked in uh, life support. You know, I worked in, uh, in admin. But those are the kinds of things that you do so you can be in training and you become a much more rounded leader. And I, I always joke it's I was the Navy produced a jack of all trades. I, I knew this much of a lot yeah, of stuff, right. but nothing really in depth other than flying an airplane uh, and the navy has intends whether you're a pilot and uh, with a shore base unit or you're living on a ship or a submarine uh, every officer and every enlisted uh, sailor has a whole list of things that they do what's their role and mission within that boat or within that ship or on that airplane uh, so it tends to lead to a different leadership style and environment and then on the airplane I was on in the P3 there are seven enlisted and five officers and the Navy is very hierarchical uh, I mean all the services are to some extent but the Navy especially uh, officers are officers and enlisted are enlisted and the two shall not ever come together you don't eat together you have separate dining facilities you have separate berthing facilities and uh, separate you know there's an officers club and an enlisted club all the services do that but in the Navy there's a a fine demarcation, you know, like mutiny on the bounty. The officers are the officers and, yeah. you know, the, the sailors are the swine. And, uh, you know, that just goes back from hundreds of years of how you do it. You only have a handful of officers, usually a very small number of officers and a large number of enlisted that are actually getting the work done. Uh, so the style is very different and how you execute your mission is done differently. Um, there's still collaborative leadership, but there's a definite, this is the boss, and right. here's everyone else. What if you completely disagree with the orders you're given? That's, you know, how do you deal with that? Well, depends. Like, uh, in an airplane, I was gonna say, in, that, in our aircraft in the P3, you know, you have seven enlisted and five officers. So we had three pilots, uh, two navigators, and then we had sensor operators, radar operators, and flight tech, and armaments guys. I worked in the back, so everyone has their role, but together you function as a team. And uh, as a result, really, of commercial aviation, uh, the military took on a lot of things that they learned in the late 70s. You, know, you remember the crash in the Iowa cornfield and uh, the crash in the Everglades, and these things developed this concept of crew resource management. So while there's one captain, like one captain of the ship or one captain of the, the flight, uh, there's a crew and everyone provides uh, input and everyone has a different piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's ways that you can find, of course the leader has to be willing to hear it and listen, but it's collaborative leadership of making sure you're listening and hearing what people are having to say. Now if you have a dictator that comes in and says, I'm gonna come in and do something that's either immoral, uh, unjust, or just wrong, then every one of those soldiers, sailors, or Marines has 
a duty and a responsibility to speak up. Uh, now, can only go so far, right? Because there still is insubordination, which can be uh, mutiny or insurrection and go on down the line. Uh, so the outcomes may be quite different than you know working at uh, the Business Journal or, or somewhere else. It's, right. You're gonna get a lot more feedback. Right. And it's, it's required. And like I said, in the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Army, it's a little bit different of how that uh, disagreement is accepted, you know, in the, in the system. And it takes a leader who's willing to listen. But in the end, they have to all understand that the captain is the captain. And that's what we're doing. Hopefully you can bring everyone on the team to agree. Right. And to follow. And I say, uh, the general officers uh, or the flag officers, the admirals in the Navy, when I just say paint it with a really broad brush, generically, and uh, the admirals I've met, I've met general officers of all, and uh, flag officers of, of all services and worked with many of them. Uh, the general officers that come from the Navy tend to be more well-rounded, uh, I'll just say softer on the edges uh, than the other services. The Air Force kind of has two different groups and it's we're trending towards most of them being in one and i say either the political uh, generals those that are they're very politically savvy and very um, adept at working in the bureaucracy and then you have the operational generals those that, that can fight the fight uh, the air force over the last 50 years has gotten to where the the political administrative segment is larger than the operational segment so i think that's something the Air Force has to look at for its long-term health. How do you balance that? Because you need both. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Navy, by its design, creates, trains, and educates their officers over time to be, you know, abroad, the jack of all trades. Right. They're looking more for that. So people go, oh, well, why is it that every admiral that I see is a pilot? So it's not exactly true, but it's largely true. So the only captain of an aircraft carrier will be a pilot. People go, what? So you have people in surface warfare, uh, you know, we call them the black shoes. So those are the, the regular uh, navigators and uh, commanders of the ships. They can command every ship out there in the fleet, pretty much. You know, submarine guys do submarines and ships do ships, but everyone except for the carrier. The carrier captain will always be a pilot because understanding the broader portion of the mission of how do you execute, operationalize that piece of the puzzle. So he goes, is that fair? Maybe not, but uh, what they do is, you know, it forces the Navy to develop their uh, flyers. If they're gonna be the ones that are gonna rise to the ranks of, you know, the captains of the aircraft carriers and fill the vast majority of the admiral ranks, well, they better have a good understanding of the rest of the operational Navy whether it's Intel or admin, you know, you name it. Mm -hmm. And the Navy's, like the Air Force has gone a little bit this way, the Navy is, has broadened it now, so there is much more career upward mobility for those that are not pilots, uh, which is good, but uh, I think the organization has to monitor itself of, you know, its health and how are its leaders uh, managing and what's the, the leader of tomorrow going to look like. Right, well, how much of your leadership style today was harvested through your career? Well, I think... Uh, things you kept and things you threw away. Well, we all learn over time from our mistakes and just from growing up and uh, maturing, uh, hopefully, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and going along, I think, as a, as a young officer uh, in the Navy, uh, I was very matter-of-fact. And it wasn't my way or the highway. I, it wasn't that, but... Um, my, my listening period was very short. Right. Uh, and I was, I was very direct. I had a boss, I was a major, so I was in the Air Force, and uh, I was just gung-ho, you know, and flying the airplane, and you know, I, I wanted to be the best operator that there was. And that was what, what I did. And I, I tell guys that I was flying with it, you know, I, I didn't mince words, I said things how they were, um, and I disregarded their, their feelings and their not completely their input, but I was quick to disregard their input. Uh, so that's you know what we talked about, how do you disagree? I, I right. was one of those guys that you were gonna get one shot and that was about it. And you know my boss told me, he says, James, please stop petting the cat backwards. 
And uh, I remember that for a long time. And he grew up, he was an enlisted uh, airman and he grew up in the Air Force, uh, you know, and then Air Force sent him to college and then he became a pilot and they sent him to pilot training. And uh, I, I thought about that and I said, and that was really for me as a transition where I was leading from, you know, as we say, the pointy edge of the spear from the warfighter to now I was doing more management. And so now managing people is something quite different than leading, you know, a small crew on an airplane. And I had to learn that I needed to take input better and be open to it, listen what's being said, and then provide feedback mm -hmm. and, you know, try to speed up that, that cycle. And as I got uh, older and one of the areas as I got, you know, still a pilot in the Air Force, but one of the things that became my area of specialty was in planning. Uh, so first it was tactical planning, then operational planning, and then ultimately strategic planning. And a lot of that really fed into how I think and operate today and how that works, you know, in a business environment, say, right. as opposed to the military environment, because not that we're a democracy in the business, but we operate much more so. Right. Uh, you have to, not that it's decision by committee, that, that drives me nuts, that's just me personally. Right. The State Department operates like that. It's, you know, decision by committee and consensus and consensus building is tedious and it's uh and european know, it, yes <laughs> it's painful there's a need for it but right uh you know i had the opportunity to work uh, as a planner uh, in israel and jordan uh, in the west bank work with the palestinian ministry of interior helping them with their strategic planning and it really opened my eyes you know of what the state department mindset is what the diplomats do uh, which is listen and right. talk and we try to arrive at consensus and you know we go around the table. Was it hard coming out of a career in the military to, oh, to yeah. be a listener and a consensus driven to be in a consensus driven role? Definitely. Did you have to bite your tongue or was it oh. just maturity that got you there? I don't know that would be fair to say maturity gets you there. Uh, it's just a different style. Yeah. If it's, it's a different model and there's a need for that sometimes. But even in a business say you know, you're my uh, picket, you know, uh, CNC operator. I don't need you to understand why we're doing it, but I would like you to understand why right. we're doing it. Right, it just makes the so overall we, path. We, this is where we're going, right? Yeah, right. I need you to operate the machine in the safest, most efficient method so possible. even in the tightest command and control situation, it's still good if everyone's on the same page and everyone has a shared sense of mission and vision, is that? Fair to say? Yeah, and now the, the communication loop tightens the more you're in a critical environment and whether that is in business or in combat. Uh, so that's what that tolerance for listening, it's gonna get small. That window right. for opportunity is gonna get smaller right. and smaller. Because you gotta keep going. And that includes whether it's your coworker or a subordinate or you know the guy in the back of the airplane. Uh, there's a military strategist uh, that came up with a term, it's called uh, OODA loop, and Colonel Boyd was his name. Actually, I had his son worked for me when I was in Seattle, um, but uh, he came up, he was a fighter pilot uh, out of the academy and just one of those big thinkers, and his OODA loop was uh, observe, orient, decide, act, and it's a circle. He says, your leadership, your combat decisiveness, and primarily his was focused on combat. How does a fighter pilot, you know, A, why, was, why were American fighters losing to the Chinese and Russian pilots. Was it aircraft or was it the operator? And they found out it was a little bit of both. And the problem was Americans were so dominant that when they came back where now the equipment was uh, equivalent, or maybe the Russians had a little bit of an advantage at the time, uh, the Americans were relying on the equipment to provide the advantage and their tactics and their, their interoperability was failing. So the observe, orient, decide, and act. And it's about, he calls it the OODA loop. And then you have to tighten that loop. And then when there's a time of peril, time of question, and then when you get back to, uh, you know, a more relaxed time or back in, in peacetime, now that loop can loosen. And now as, as you have a, a crisis or an emergency or a response, now you have to tighten that loop. So th it's the idea is you observe your situation, listen, take in input, see what's out there, uh, orient, now you have to place yourself, okay, where am I in this? I understand the big picture, we're here, we're going there, and now I have to decide. 
Okay, that's where I'm going. So I've done the observe, orient, decide, now I'm gonna act. And as soon as I act, go back to, did I achieve what I tried to do? Did we get the results we were looking for? Did I make the right decision? Could I have done differently? Did I get all inputs? Okay, and then now the process starts again. And you continue to do that. And the same works in business and it works uh, anywhere. And I think you and I had talked about it before. I said, when I first came to the chamber, uh, I mentioned to the staff in my first uh, staff meeting, I, I equivocated uh, this job of bringing somebody like me into uh, a business development, economic development entity, you know, well, what experience do you have that will work here? And how does that right. translate? I said, it's, it's very similar. Um, leadership and management are, are not the same. And this was really about leading and managing a team. Mm -hmm. So it's really, what are the objectives? And then how do we facilitate that the best? But I said, this to me, the Mahoning Valley reminds me very much uh, for economic development primarily of uh, the decision processes that the Palestinians uh, find themselves in. They're like, why are you comparing us to the Palestinians <laughs> and the Palestinian territory? I said, yes, on a very simple um, point is that we in the Mahoning Valley, uh, well, I'll start with the, the Middle East first. When I go there, the Israelis, they want to sit you down and talk to you. You know, I go to the first meeting with the minister of the Palestinian uh, interior and he said, James, let me explain to you the history of the Palestinians and where we are today. You know, back in uh, the turn of the century and the Churchill White Paper defined what the Palestinian territory was going to be in the break of Transjordan. And they walk you through the whole history right. to today of where they sit. And they will explain to you that everything happens to them. Mm -hmm. So they don't make any decisions. These outside entities were from the White Paper on down to the... Uh, the wall and the checkpoints of today's, you know, West Bank, it happened to them. Other people made these decisions and there was nothing they could do about it. And uh, of course the Israelis, they would tell you, well, James, let me explain to you, 2000 years ago when the temple fell, this is what happened to us and our people. And they'd walk you up to today, why? Not to justify, but just to explain, mm -hmm. this is who we are and why we're here. Uh, and the stories were not that different. They were just arrived at differently. And here in the Mahoning Valley, I always heard people saying, well, you don't understand, you know, uh, on, in 1979, you know, the whole world fell apart and, you know, it came down. I said, as a student of history and just wanting to know and be aware, I really went in and, and delved into it, you know, and I tell people, especially the longtime uh, Valley residents, I said, that's, that's a little bit of revisionist history because it's, one, it's not true. Uh, did it happen? Yes. But yeah. the, you know, the beginning of the end wasn't in 1979. The beginning of the end was uh, really during World War II, about 1942, when uh, U.S. Steel, amongst a number of other uh, large uh, entities, made decisions then not to invest in the industry that was here. And in post-World War II, they chose to invest in where did they build those new steel factories and uh, mills? Japan and Germany. They weren't investing in 1950 in the mills here. And, you know, the, you could say, well, the, maybe the real beginning of the end was when local ownership of all the industry that was here left. That would be the Youngstown Sheet and Tube. When that finally sold in 1969, you knew that the beginning of the end was truly coming. Now it was just stretched out of how long can we let this happen to us? No one was being proactive about how do we change that course? Because if we do nothing, this is where we're going to end up. And we found that out in the late 70s and the early 80s, and it all happened to us. So we have to change the dynamic of how do we make a plan to change the trajectory we're on. Mm -hmm. So back to uh, Colonel Boyd's uh, OODA loop, you know, have, have we observed what we're doing? And what we chose to do here in the Valley was mostly ready, aim, fire, you know, mm -hmm. or worse yet, ready, fire, 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 stop. Mm -hmm. Are we looking at, are we hitting what we're shooting at? What is it we're doing? And good people were doing what they thought were the right things, but we weren't looking for an outcome, a specific outcome, uh, or we weren't achieving it, either of which should go back and say, we need to rethink our plan and how do we move forward and be proactive about it. Failing is going to happen. All of us will fail at some point. Right. How do you respond to it? That defines the leader. How do you change the trajectory? How do you try? 
You know, because you sit there and you say, well, that didn't work. You know, maybe it was my leadership style. Maybe I didn't understand the premise or my, I, I was operating under a faulty premise. What do we do? And, um, you know, helping each other as a community and here, whether it's in the Palestinian territories or in the Mahoning Valley, if we stay in our little silos, we're not going to be successful. Right. I can guarantee you that. So do you think the current economic development happening today with, say, well, you know, Ultium Cells, GM, LG Chem, Joint Venture, Lordstown Motors, TJX, are these things that happened to us or was there a, is there a plan and a vision and an outcome that you feel like we're all together or these were just kind of fortunate <laughs> happenings that are kind of now putting us on a path? I think, uh, as we talked about before, you have to prepare and be ready for the next opportunity. Yeah. And if you look back, uh, Two years ago, uh, you know, I wrote an op-ed, President Tressel wrote an op-ed, we had a few others, Ohio uh, Manufacturers Association uh, wrote in about why the Mahoning Valley should support a battery factory. And when we worked with people like Dave Green, when we saw, when I came to the chamber and looked, you go, much like the steel factories of the 70s, what was happening was not sustainable. People go, oh, well, it was great. You know, I got great pay and I got all these benefits. I got five weeks off every summer because we furloughed everyone, but you're being paid. How, how sustainable is that? Right. But we looked at, oh my gosh, we're down to, uh, you know, 17,000 uh, cars a month. That's not sustainable. Are we still gonna maintain three shifts? And then we start talking and find out, no, not only we're going from three shifts to two shifts, but we knew that one shift was coming. Now we go, okay, looking a little further out, what's the next vehicle that's going to replace the cruise because this is really important and if there isn't anything behind it that means there isn't a plan right and so talking with dave and the united auto workers and the others said we we can do this a number of different ways we can be combative we can be um, obstinate we can be loud and shout at the company or we can go general motors you need to know what you have here both in the workforce in the factory itself and in the ecosystem that surrounds Youngstown. And uh, you know, it's not just Lordstown, it's, it's much more than that. Right. And the whole automotive industry and the history and the excellence in manufacturing and oh, we've got additive manufacturing, we can be part of your next generation uh, vehicle. And I think, I truly believe that by that uh, narrative, feeding that narrative to and not only uh, Detroit, but to Washington, D.C., and to other parts of the world that say, no, the Mahoning Valley is not irrelevant. We've always been involved in manufacturing. Now we're involved in all the you know, next uh, generation additive manufacturing and uh, next generation manufacturing techniques and strategies. We're, steel is part of who we are and it will continue to be, but it's gonna look and feel different. Uh, we're gonna be smarter. We're gonna uh, you know, uh, be better than uh, you know, any of our competitors because that's our competitive advantage. And we're gonna take that and say, this could be the next place for you to do things like electrification. And we started having that conversation uh, within ourselves, right? Uh, but then beyond that, and sending those messages to places like uh, Detroit. And early on, uh, the Detroit Free Press, Free Press and the uh, Auto Automotive News started carrying things about, could Lordstown be the next, you know, generation auto manufacturer. Could that be where it is? Because everyone assumed that was all gonna happen in Detroit right. at their Hamtramck plant and uh, a few others. You know, they were already building batteries with LG up there. And so talking, whether it was with the Lieutenant Governor uh, and Governor when they were on the campaign trail, said the very first thing you need to do is talk about GM and, and talk to GM because as the president of the chamber, I don't get an opportunity to sit with the president and CEO of or the CEO of GM, but you do, you know, use that and say, <clears throat> the state of Ohio wants to be part of your next opportunity. We told that uh, to, you know, the Trump campaign as they were working through as well as Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman and say, we want to tell our own narrative here about the Valley of who we could be, what we want to be. So was it a unified decision? No, but I think we all looked and said, we have a couple paths that we can go down. Let's choose the one of being okay, maybe it's a little aspirational, but let's choose our own path. Right. Say, we wanna go this direction. Right. And working with the things that we already had here, like America Makes and YBI and Bright, and saying, 
look, look what we have here in Youngstown. Because people go, well, why Youngstown? I said, because we have these assets here. Not only that, we have this legacy and this history that we're proud of. But we can be part of the next generation. Don't be telling the story about what happened. Yeah, leave that behind. That, yeah, and we're proud of it. Right. And some of it was painful. But that's why you have that strength in manufacturing here. And let us be a part of your next generation manufacturing. So I don't think... Uh, Personally, that in um, 2018, that GM had Lordstown on their map as part of their uh, electrification plans. Mm -hmm. I think it was through the Trump administration, our governor, uh, lieutenant governor, um, our other elected officials, uh, whether it's Sean O'Brien and uh, Mike Rooley or Tim Ryan. I mean, every one of them, and we were always pound on them. Tell the story. This is what we want to be. And uh, just bringing that home, they started thinking, oh, well, maybe it could be. Like I said, the, the press in Detroit, my aunt was telling me all the time, uh, she retired from Ford and she's always following all the automotive news. And uh, she's like, wow, you guys are just in the press up here all the time. We're more up there. Huh. Uh, the union happenings, the layoffs, uh, and then some of the things we were doing at the time, trying to encourage GM just to invest in Lordstown and keep the uh, UAW workers we had here and our, keep our family intact best we could. Uh, but knowing full well that that may not come to fruition, there may not be a new product to save the plant as it currently is, but we wanted to make sure that we were ready for whatever that next opportunity might be. Nobody had any idea that a battery factory was even in the realm of possibility. I think we were thinking about some electric car or right. something else, but hey, why not? You know, then people would say, well, LG's really not interested in, in a union stronghold like Youngstown. I said, look, we've got strong uh, trades here, union and non-union, and they're a strength. They're not a weakness. Let us explain to you how that can work for you and your team and start having the, those discussions at very high levels, just that they're even willing to consider it. And I go back to you know, the Palestinian territories. I would tell the minister, you know, I said, well, how many Palestinian security forces are we going to train this year? Well, I don't know. You Americans are training them. You tell me. I said, well, how many do you need? Well, I don't know. Well, how many borders are you going to have? Because, you know, basically with each border crossing, you need so many. And then you have to have some internal security forces. So, you know, how many police stations are you going to have? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, let's go step back a couple more and go, hey, what do we want to be? Well, we would like a future Palestinian state. Okay, well, what's it going to take to get there? Because the Israelis have a vote, whether you want it or not, right? right. Well, they want a secure border. Okay, well, let's start talking about now how many border uh, crossing points do we have? Well, I don't know, whatever the Israelis let us. Well, okay, how many do we currently have? You know, and you go there and say, uh, sometimes it's very difficult for people to build a vision of what could be because they're stuck in what was right. or we don't have a voice yet. Yeah you have a voice and we here in the valley have a voice it's about what do we really want to be and we have a lot of really great people doing great things here but we undersell ourselves and we let other people tell our story and so i think the beginning uh, it was a terrible crisis for us in so many ways mainly breaking up of families and you know people leaving our community for the lordstown plant to come apart but that was the first time as a result of the crew's uh, production going away with no follow-on vehicle, that groups of people that may not have been speaking together and thinking together uh, started getting together and talking about what could be and you know, building some hope and a little bit of a vision. Is it unified? No. Is there an organization that could come in and make it happen? Or is this literally just the people collaborating and capturing a shared vision putting egos aside and working together. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, putting the egos aside. Uh, it has to be collaborative. So we have, in, you know, in the military, we had the same thing, but I call it the silos of excellence. And here in the Valley, we have our silos of excellence, whether it's Trumbull County, Mahoning County, Columbiana County, or Youngstown, Warren, Niles, Hubbard, Canfield. No, we've got to start thinking, acting like a community. Right. Because we are one. We're 13 plus uh, disparate communities that have a history of not working together. Not that there's animosity, well, there might right. be some, but yeah. uh, it's just we have a history of not working together, so we have to figure out how can we do it. And that's about getting together and 
uh, through collaboration is the only path that we're going to get there. Uh, we have some hurdles to do. Uh, basically, you know, we're built with our communities um, to support about 1.2 million people. We're down to about 600,000. Right. Uh, so we have some excess infrastructure, inventory, housing, you name it. Uh, but those hurdles can be overcome. We have to come together and figure out how we're going to do that. Uh, it's a tough job for somebody like uh, Mayor Brown or Mayor Franklin of how do you do that? And we count on them to, to lead from the front. Right. Because it starts and ends with Youngstown and Warren. Right. And I don't care if you live in Canfield or Latonia, what happens in Youngstown is going to affect the future of your kids. So you've been around the country, around the world. Are we truly unique relative to every other place you've been? Or do you, or is this a... <laughs> Other than Pretty, similar to the Palestinian right. territory. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're very unique. I mean, we have a unique history. Uh, we have, uh, you know, unique people. We have unique struggles. And uh, it seems to be the perennial struggle here in the Valley. And um, it doesn't have to be that way. I see plenty of opportunity. And I think, well, we've talked about it before. I think uh, folks that have, that come from outside or that left and came back can see the opportunity. Right. Much easier than those that are in the forest. Yes. And uh, they just like, oh, you don't understand. This is what happened to us. I said, yeah, but there's opportunity. And how do we get around that? Well, we have to just keep coming together. People have to do the right thing for the right reason, or at least try uh, and do for the greater good. Put the ego aside and say, you know, what's really in the best interest? And I talk about the Tiger Grant, uh, you know, and what we see happening here on uh, Fifth Avenue. A lot of leaders in the whole community came together and said, we all support this as our number one project. Now you might say, why would a mayor from Canfield care? Well, because what happens in Youngstown matters. Right. And uh, so by all those leaders coming together and getting a nice project like this, it's small in the whole scheme of things, but it's a start of how do we prepare so we have a nice Phelps Street and you know things downtown are better because as Youngstown goes, so goes the rest of our community. Uh, so we have to be proactive in how we do that. You know, I'd like to see things of how is it done well uh, uh, for legacy cities like like us in our community. It's a little bit difficult because we have what we have, and now how do we ha or get what we want? Uh, we have to do things differently, and that means coming together. So things that are unspeakable, like maybe uh, a water uh, and sewer district that covers all 13 communities in the Mahoning Valley across two or three counties. Oh, that's unheard of, that'll never happen. Well, we have to think about how can we do it? Maybe we don't do it exactly like they did in Southern California, because that's different. Their history right. was different. But maybe we can do it smartly in a new collaborative way in public-public partnerships or public-private partnerships or a mix of the two and make sure that we don't have a fire department in Liberty Township, quarter mile away from a fire department in Girard that don't have mutual aid agreements right. and interoperability. Now, that, that's excess infrastructure and people that we can't afford today. So we have to figure out how do we do it smartly. And I, I hate to use that uh, as, a, as an example, but it's just one of many. Right. Snow removal. Let's just talk about salt. You know, salt on the roads. Uh, we have, give or take, 20-some different purchase agreements for salt here in the valley. Each county has a purchasing department where they can purchase one time at a great, you know, bulk discount. Bulk discount for every municipality within their No, some of them have taken advantage over that over the this really over the last few years that we've had more of that happening. More mutual aid agreements between the fire departments and police departments that are here. And that's, those are the kinds of things that we have to do to find our sale, get out of the habit of doing things the way we've always done them right. and do them in what's in the best interest of our community, of our citizens. And it doesn't matter if you're Gerard or Liberty, uh, it's in the best interest that we all work together and you know, that your house doesn't burn down, but mine, mine does because we live in different districts. Right. How, how do we do it smart? So what they did you know, with the ABC water district or the, uh, what do they call it, Cardinal, uh, fire district. Right. That's innovative. That's thinking about, okay, given a limited number of resources, how can we best provide those needed resources to our citizens? And it's about thinking creatively, uh, coming together collaboratively to solve the, the problem. And 
the you know the fire chiefs out there well they know the answer right we just haven't asked them yeah right or yeah, yeah. you know something like that so how do you do it and that's a, a good example is it perfect no but it's it's better than what we had so we we're on question one of eight <laughs> <laughs> we've gone an hour so far i feel like this is a great place to at least wrap up part one of our conversation sure. <laughs> i mean this was fascinating to hear i've, I've had these questions penned up for a long time, so I appreciate your time <laughs> here on the Brain Gain podcast. Any final challenge or anything, final words you want to share to the audience at this point? I think uh, we're part of a, an amazing community. You know, my wife and kids and I are, feel fortunate to be here. Uh, we love the people here. We have some issues that we can overcome. I think all of us can. Uh, you know, I'm excited to be a part of it in a small way, whatever way I can. And I think. Uh, we have a lot of really good people. You know, what's happening up at YSU is a good example. Uh, you know, what they put together at Bright and America Makes and YBI. I mean, these are things that other communities don't have. And it's uh, a strength, harkens back to the uh, history of who we are as a community and, you know, who, we, who do we want to be moving forward? And I think if we look at that of, you know, what's in the best interest, collective best interest of our community, uh, we'll get there. We have a lot of great people doing some really great things. Uh, just acknowledge it and you know continue working together it's it's possible right. it really is we'll get there right well james you know want to thank you want to thank gringos here for being yeah, such great, great great host it's a great great restaurant check it out it's on phelps street uh very conscientious it smells extremely clean in here <laughs> right they are all wearing masks it's a very safe environment yeah i got i got my mask right here in my pocket so but no i want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today yeah thanks for having me Before we go, I'd like to thank members of the Brain Gain Coalition, especially our great sponsors. Without them, none of this would be possible. So a big thank you goes to Sweeney, Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, the Moransky Companies, and the Mahoning Valley Manufacturers Coalition. Thanks so much for their support. And also, please follow, like, and subscribe to this series on your favorite podcast player. And if you have any questions, just go ahead and connect with me on LinkedIn, one of my favorite places. You can find me over there at Jeff Leo Herman and send me a message. I will see you next time. I'm growing up in this life and to the human that I need to be. I know that I am not alone. I'm brave. I got what it takes. Thanks for watching the video. Be sure to like, subscribe, and hit that little bell for notifications. And also make sure to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. For all of your business news, visit businessjournaldaily.com. For all of your arts and entertainment news, go to afterhoursyoungstown.com.